I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. So today we're talking about English translations of the Bible. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, <laughs> nice little good there. And the issue is, uh, can can I trust them? Can I trust my English translations, or which ones can I or should I? And and what are some of the differences that are there? Um, are they in, are there translations that are that are intended to undermine my faith? Uh, we already spoke a lot in the past several weeks about manuscripts and the transmission of the text, um, but most of us are not reading Greek and Hebrew, myself included, as my primary language. Um, I I would consider Greek to be like a like ninth level removed language to me, <laughs> but but no, we're we're reading English most of us, and so what's a good translation for you is kind of the end result of your question. Is like you know I I want to have a Bible I grab and I read, and what and what is what is that? So hopefully today's gonna gonna help. Uh, but before I get into specific translations, as I will, I'm gonna overview several specific translations that are available on the market today that we could read, so you could just understand the differences between them. Uh, the those types of things. But before I do that, let me just explain why new translations are even printed in the first place. There's several reasons. Um, probably one of the first reasons why a new translation is started out nowadays is because of money. In all honesty, um, it's just the reality is that publishing companies, uh, they want their own translation so they don't have to pay royalties to another company that owns this version of the Bible or that version of the Bible. They want to print their own study Bible so maybe they don't want to use that guy's translation. And the Bibles sell big. Bibles sell really big. In fact, they're consistently ignored on bestseller lists, on lists of book bestsellers. They're just ignored because they would always be up there <laughs> because nothing sells like the Bible. Nothing sells like the Bible. Now, that's a, that's a good thing because it means lots of people are interested in the Word of God and they're getting it, they're buying it, and that sort of thing. I think it's great that a publishing company could think, I want to translate the Bible, and there's a market for it as opposed to them you know, not having a market for it. That's a good thing. But that is one reason. So money, money, money. That's kind of awkward, right? But there's a lot of other reasons. Let me get into those. Um, English changes over time. This is a second reason why we get new Bible translations. English, the language English changes all the time. And I'll get into some specific examples when I talk about the King James Version because it's a much older translation of English. So I'll give you some specific words that have changed. But I think we all know this. We live in times where English is changing uh, more rapidly right now than it really ever has before, ever has before. And uh, I hope that doesn't trigger you or anything. Uh, but yeah, it's it's changing quick. It's changing quick. Uh, words just don't necessarily mean the same thing they did to people hundreds of years ago, spoken in English. A third reason for new translations would be new Greek manuscripts in particular. Not so much the Hebrew Old Testament, that there's some light shined on that from Dead Sea Scrolls and whatnot, but mostly it's the Greek New Testament that we're getting light on. We talked about several of the specific examples of light from new discoveries in Greek manuscripts over the past couple hundred years. Um, sometimes it confirms a reading. We already have both readings in the manuscript tradition, and we're, we're thinking, is it this one, is it that one? And then we get older manuscripts, and they happen to be this reading instead of that. So we go, okay, this one's the original, most likely. But let me give you a really brief overview of what I mean by we have new Greek manuscripts. Uh, in 1611, when the King James Version came out, they based the King James Version translation, uh, the New Testament in particular, off of basically six Greek manuscripts of the, of the New Testament. Six Greek manuscripts. Essentially just six. 
And the earliest of those was from the 10th century. So the earliest of the King James in 1611, the earliest manuscript it's basing the New Testament off of is a thousand years removed from Christ. It's a thousand years later. And then the, the latest from the 13th century. Um, in 1881, flash forward, the revised version came out, the RV. Uh, different kind of RV, though. And it was based on about 2,000 Greek manuscripts, the early of, earliest of which was not in the 10th century. It went all the way back to the 4th century. So this is what we mean by, well, we've got a lot more manuscripts now, and there's a lot earlier evidence for what the original reading was. Today, that was 1881. Today, there's over 5,800 manuscripts, well over 5,800 manuscripts, and the earliest dates to the late 1st or early 2nd century. So you can see why from 1611 till now, there's just a lot more evidence to sift through um, as far as what did it originally say. And I think that that's a, that's a good thing. So we have money as a motivation, English language changing, new Greek manuscripts, as well as some, some new information on the Old Testament, um, and then new insights into old languages. Now, this is, this is not about English changing. This is about our understanding of those ancient Greek words, the Koine Greek, our understanding changes. In 1895, we came to find through the discovery of 2,000-year-old Greek manuscripts, a bunch of them, that the New Testament Greek was common Greek. Now, this may not be a surprise to you because it's common knowledge now, but we now know that the, that the Greek of the New Testament was koine, or it was the common Greek. Everybody spoke this Greek. But before that, scholars didn't know that fact. In fact, the scholars often thought back in the day, including when the King James was translated, and for several translations before and after that, they thought that the New Testament Greek was a special Greek that was perhaps these extra words were made by the Holy Spirit as he was inspiring the authors. They're like, we don't know. There were 500 words that they didn't have any evidence of outside of the New Testament. 500 of these New Testament words aren't anywhere else. And so you have to look at the context and guess at the meaning of the word, which, you know, can be hard, can be easy, depends on the, the particular sentence. They even sometimes called it Holy Ghost Greek. Holy Ghost Greek. Not as a, a mocking thing, but just they're just going, hey man, God inspired it. He was like, I want to communicate something, so here's a new word to say it. Well, since then we've discovered this is actually written in common Greek. And at the time there were over 500 words unknown outside the Bible. But nowadays there's about 50 words in the New Testament unknown in other writings. So we went from 500 unknown to 50 unknown. So we have new light shine on old writings, so then you go, well, hey, should we have a new translation that reflects this new information, a better, more accurate rendering of this word in English? Let me give you a couple examples. Um, it is finished. Jesus said this on the cross. It is finished. In the Greek, tetelestai, he says that. We know that, and we know it because we hear it preached. Hey, tetelestai, it's like what they would put on, on receipts, like, oh, paid in full is what it meant. It's been paid in full. Your debt is, is resolved. Well, that information is only post-King James Version. Like, we didn't know this information until the 1800s, the late 1800s. Now we know tetelestai has this fuller meaning that before that never would have made it into a sermon. Um, the phrase only begotten in John 3.16, God gave us his only begotten son. We've learned that from the usage of, of that phrase outside of the New Testament, that only begotten is more accurately translated one and only. One and only. Yeah, it's only begotten is the literal, like, you know, this is the uh, etymology of the word, but the usage is one and only or unique son. 
So that doesn't change things too drastically, uh, but, it's, but it's more clarity is what it gives us. So it was thought by many um, that translations should reflect the original. That's true, right? I think so. And if the original was written in common, common Greek language, well, then the translation should be written in common English language or common French or common Spanish, written in the language of sort of normal person can understand. Now, at this point, uh, I know there's some people who think, but this old translation that I read, say the King James Version, I mean, that's what I, I, I actually, I, I, went, I went NIV for years, and then I was King James Version for years, and then it was New King James Version for years. And so, so I got used to the, new, to the King James Version and then New King James. And, um, and, and like most people, you just use whatever the church you go to uses. And I don't really have a problem with that. You know, I want to be on the same page, you know, figuratively speaking, as, as the pastor is. You know, when he's teaching, I don't want to be like, wait, wait, where is he? You know, because I'm just getting a little confused. There's a couple words different. But you might just be like, but man, the King James just sounds like the Bible. It just like feels like the Bible. It just, it just feels like it, you know. But the reality is, whatever you're used to will feel like the Bible. It'll sound like the Bible. I remember uh, traveling one time with a group of people, and they were part of like a high church tradition. And the church they went to had like stained glass and had other, other things going on like that. There was very liturgical stuff. And they go into this building as we're, as we're in Israel. And we had been like, here's the Sea of Galilee. And we're like, we're like talking about the Sermon on the Mount, like near the location where Jesus delivered it. And I'm just looking at the water going, man, this is like awesome stuff, man. And then we go into Jerusalem and then you see some of these big church, gaudy church buildings. And I'm kind of like, bleh, you know, whatever. That's just me. Okay, I'm not saying there's anything wrong. That's just my reaction. And we get in there, and one person from our group, who's this high church tradition, she looks around and goes, she goes, now I'm feeling it. Because, the, see, what we feel sometimes is just about nostalgia. It's not good or bad. It's just, I'm just connected to this particular thing. I associate the stained glass with ministry. We're, but, like, in Calvary Chapel movements, like ours, we tend to be like, wow, you're meeting in a warehouse? Now that's spiritual. Right? We're like the opposite. We tend to think like, oh, stained glass. Oh, that's going to that's gonna kill the movement, man. What are you doing? You know? And so we tend to err on the other side as well. So it, it's just, we have to recognize this. Maybe I think I like it sounding this way. It feels higher. It feels, you know, gaudy or it feels better. But ultimately, that's just my opinion. It, it's, it's too subjective to say that that's therefore the word of God. Um, I think that, that that would be a mistake. So let's not spiritualize what we like or what we're used to. Um, to the early church, the Bible sounded like normal language. There isn't the Greek equivalent of the and thou in, in the Greek. They're just, it's, not, it's not there. Although it sounds nice. I, I like it. I like it too. But it's not in the Greek, so let's not insist on it. That's all. It's acceptable, but it's not required. So before we move in to that... Um, you do know you have a translation, though, right? Like, you realize, like, Paul didn't speak English. Like, this is not, if, if he looked at this, he'd be like, what is that? English literally did not exist in Paul's day. Some people, uh, the, the old joke goes, you know, if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. King James Version. And you're like, it wasn't good enough for Paul. <laughs> like, it didn't exist. It wasn't bad for him either. It just wasn't around. Um, so if you spoke French or Spanish or Swahili, wouldn't you have to ask the same question, what translation would be a good choice for me in my language? And the same thing here. We're second language Christians. 
we take the Bible from its original language into our language and hopefully accurately try to understand it. And uh, we're very fortunate because there are literally hundreds of English translations. Hundreds. Way too many for me to even try to or want to cover or certainly want to study that many translations. I don't have that much time. There's no way I'm looking at all of them, so I'm just going to focus tonight on a few popular translations from sort of different spectrums of the way they translate the Bible, um, and the ones which most of us are probably likely to run into, uh, these types of translations. And when I do this, if you're a note taker, I'll pick a translation and I'll try to look at three different issues for each translation. So the first issue, very quick and easy, I'll just say, hey, what's the textual basis? Like, are they using um, the the younger majority of manuscripts, like the stuff that was around when the King James was translated? Um, or are they including information from the recent discoveries, the other thousands of Greek ancient manuscripts? So the younger translation, the, the younger texts as their basis or the older as well as the younger, because they take it all in. They take it all in. So um, most of the translations we'll talk about, they take all of them in. A, a, a couple of them only look at the, um, the, uh, the, the same ones that King James did. So the textual basis... Um, the older minority or the younger majority? Which one are they looking at? And they really aren't that different. They really aren't. There's maybe about 2% difference between the most diverse manuscript sources. And that 2%, of course, isn't most, mostly is not significant information, as we talked about last time. So that should be obvious from that, that message. But before I get into that, uh, as far as this textual basis goes, there's some people who think there's a conspiracy going on. Like if you take these, these, these more ancient manuscripts, which they like to call the Alexandrian text, um, which that's, that's the name for it. We call it the Alexandrian text type, although there's a lot more than that that's in there. And they go, well, Egypt is evil in the Bible, and therefore any text from Alexandria must be bad, which is another way of saying you think Christians in Alexandria didn't have a Bible, <laughs> which seems a little strange. But there are those who think there's a conspiracy to take out the deity of Christ from these ancient texts. And there are people who have influenced some of us, even myself at a younger age, where I thought, wow, well, then I don't want those Bibles if they're taking out the deity of Christ. So let me clear that up real quick. It's true that in uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 and 1 John 5.7, you're going to have less reference to the deity of Christ in those particular two, two places. Part, part of it's because in uh, 1 John 5.7, that verse really shouldn't be in the Bible at all. It's a great verse. We talked about it last week. And very carefully, and I hope thoroughly explained it. But in John 1.18, in Philippians 2.6, Titus 2.13, and 2 Peter 1.1, you'll have the deity of Christ even more clearly. You'll have it more clearly. And typically these translations will show the deity of Christ more clearly than the King James does, or the New King James for that matter. And um, that's a surprise to me. I was surprised as I started studying this more and more. I was like, wow, that's not what I had heard. Because I'd basically been, been fed as a younger Christian this sort of conspiracy theory about how I should only trust the King James, maybe the New King James, and then all the other translations are basically trying to slowly erode my faith through like paganism and like basically they translated it with witchcraft or something like that. And uh, th this, this just wasn't true. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that it wasn't true. So the more I study and learn, the more I'm not conspiratorial. Though it is true that some translations, new translations, do have liberal and I mean that in a negative sense, liberal, um, you know, influence in them. And I'll try to talk about that as it comes up. So, so the first thing I'll look at with each translation is, what's their translation method, uh, or excuse me, uh, basis? What text did they use? The more ancient stuff or 
the less ancient stuff in, in general. Then we're looking at translation methodology. Uh, this would be like word-for-word -word translation or thought-for-thought -thought translation. Uh, a word-for-word, -word, what's called a formal equivalence, that's the fancy term. That is a more literal translation, and the advantage of it is it's, it's, you get more nuances from the text. Like, you'll get exactly what they said when it's more word-for-word. -word. And if it was a complicated sentence that had careful structure and was trying to communicate very important things, you'll get all that out of the word-for-word -word translation. The disadvantage is that sometimes if you translate it just straight word-for-word, -word, in English, it would just be nonsense because it doesn't translate. It needs to, be, needs to be worked a little bit in the translation across. Then there's what's called thought-for-thought thought or phrase-for-phrase phrase or the fancy term is a dynamic equivalence translation. And these are people that are going to say, well, we're going to translate it from the original language into English using more liberty, a little bit more maybe idioms and you know, willing to sort of change the exact wording in order to try to preserve the exact meaning. That would be that, that theory, the dynamic equivalence. For instance, and this is where just about every translation does this in this verse. Matthew 1.18, it tells us that Mary was pregnant, right? She was found to be with child. In the actual Greek, it says, and I quote, Mary was found to be having it in the belly. Okay. This is where they go, let's do this verse in a dynamic sense. Because having it in the belly is a Jewish idiom. The Jews would get it. It's a Greek thing. The Greeks would get it. The English people, not so much. You know, having it in the having what having what in the belly? What happened to her belly? You know, so they translate it. You know, she was found to be pregnant or found to be with child or something like that. Um, so that would be uh, and the advantage of this, the dynamic equivalence or the thought for thought or phrase for phrase, is it's easier to get. It's way easier to understand. This is the Bible you read and you're like, wow, this is so easy to understand. That's the advantage. The disadvantage is it's easy to miss things because in simplifying, you lose nuance. You lose the nuance or the, the particular way in which it was said. It was like, oh, that wasn't quite exactly right. You got the main point, you know. So you can lose things through that. The nature of translating is that there's always a weakness to point out. If you have a word for word, you go, oh, but yeah, but yeah, but that's exactly right. But you know, I don't. Nobody understands that. And then you have phrase for phrase, and you go, oh, well, that yeah, you get the main point across, but you lost the nuance. And so, really, translations are kind of on a sliding scale between these two ideas. They tend to slide more this way, slide more that way. You know, for certain verses, they'll move this way. For certain verses, they'll go that way. And that's that's what we'll focus on for number two. So, textual basis, translation methodology, and number three peculiarities, what I call peculiarities, which is just random stuff about this translation that is interesting to know, and it's worth pointing out. Um, so here we go. Hopefully without being uh, nitpicking too much, let's talk about different translations. So the first one up is the King James Version. The 1611 King James Version ends up being an ancestor of a lot of our modern translations. They actually come, in a sense, from the King James. The textual basis was about six Greek text for the New Testament. Um, it was actually, believe it or not, the King James was not a translation directly from the original language into, um, into English with no intermediary. It was actually based on what was called the Bishop's Bible, and they used influence from the Tyndale Bible and a few others, including even, lastly, and despised the Geneva Bible because that was, the Anglicans didn't like the Geneva Bible too much. So, <laughs> so they used several other English translations in their work to make the King James Version. It includes an interesting thing to know about their translation, uh, their translation basis. They had these six Greek manuscripts, but that was the basis of a, of, a, of a compilation by a guy named Erasmus. 
Now, I don't want to give you all the details. It's just too much to go over for tonight. But Erasmus, he compiled this Greek. And when it came to the end of the book of Revelation, he only had one Greek source for the book of Revelation. So he, he copies the Greek over and he finds as he gets towards the end, a couple of the, about the last pages had fallen out. This is a true story. This is well documented. And what Erasmus did was he went to the Latin and then he guessed at what the Greek words would have been for just the last several verses of Revelation. And he put that in his Greek text. This actually came up with a couple new Greek readings that did not, don't exist anywhere in the manuscript world on the planet Earth. None, nothing like horrendous or really bad or offered. I mean, it was, it was really close, but not exactly right. The phrase book of life instead of tree of life, at the end of Revelation, he'll have his part taken away from the tree of life or the book of life. Well, he put book because of the, the similarity of the Latin word for tree and book. But it's not in the Greek anywhere. Here's the reason why I point this out. The King James Version preserves Erasmus's basically invented word, book. They preserve that in the King James Version. New King James also preserves it. Um, we know for sure, I mean, there's no way on earth that this is the right reading. For, for sure, that's the wrong word. I mean, am I, do I lose the book of life or the tree of life? It's like, well, either way, this is bad news. You know, this, is not, this is not like a big doctrine hangs on this. I'm just pointing it out for, uh, for the interest of it. Um, so they used basically what then they call the majority text, um, which means that they also included 1 John 5, 7, uh, <laughs> which is actually an exception to the majority text, included the end of Revelation having some unique readings. So the King James Version has a couple things that don't actually really source back to the Greek at all. They really don't. Uh, 1 John 5, 7, uh, really in no ancient Greek manuscripts, there's no reason to have it in there. And the end of Revelation readings are there. So here's what happened later on, after the King James Version was printed, they said, we want to we want to have a Greek version of the King James. And they printed a Greek version of the King James, and that later became called the Texas Receptus, or the Received Text. There are many advocates today who say you shouldn't have a translation unless it comes from the Texas Receptus, the Received Text, because that's what the King James was from. No, the, the Received Text is from the King James, not the other way around. And this is like a weird thing where they go, well, I'll accept anything that comes from the received text. And you're like, you don't understand. There's no such thing as ancient Greek manuscripts called the received text. It's a Greek working of the King James is what it ultimately ends up being. Um, I, I put that out there for those of us who are exposed to King James, because there's only one group out there who says only this translation. That's the King James only crowd. Everybody else is pretty much open to anything that's an accurate translation of the Bible. But there's one group out there that says only this translation and no other. And most of us have had some influence towards us in our group of the King James only crowd. Now, you're probably not King James only, but perhaps you've heard some of the, the stuff and it made you suspicious. It made you suspicious and a little bit hesitant about other translations. And I think that, that that's un, unwarranted. So the translation methodology, that's, the, that's the, uh, the basics, the basis, the textual basis of the King James. The method they used to make it was word for word. Obviously, most of us know this. It was a word for word translation primarily. Um, but interestingly enough, it was more literary than literal. It was, they would purposely make it more literary. They would enhance the literary character of the text beyond even what it is in the original languages to make it just sound more beautiful. And it's considered an amazing work of art, literary art, the King James Version. It's unparalleled. I don't know if there's any text, any English Bible that could be, could be held up alongside the King James as like 
the prose and the, the high church feeling of it that you just can't compare it to. Um, that doesn't make it more accurate. That just, it just makes it beautiful. Here's some peculiarities about the King James Version. Uh, it's extremely highly respected work. Still, it is a very good translation. Um, it is not the original <laughs> King James Version. So let, let's put up uh, picture number two that I had up there for you. Or actually, it should be number three. The second uh, zoomed-in version. This is the original 1611 King James Version. Um, if you can make it as big as possible. There's a little plus on the bottom right of the screen. There you go. This is the original King James Version. It's written, this is actually printed, and it's printed in what's called Gothic script or Gothic font. Can you read that? It starts to get a little hard as you keep going on, right? Some letters don't correspond with the English we're used to today because English has changed over time. So you're like, well, what am I reading? And I have King James. Well, you're actually reading the, the 17... Um, yeah, the 1769 version of Dr. Blaney from Oxford, that is the one most widely used today. Not the 1611, but the 1769 version. It has lots and lots of changes. Nothing really drastic, mostly it's just spelling differences and things like that, updating the English. They also printed it later on in Roman font instead of in uh, Gothic font, and that helped out a little bit because it looks cool, but it's a little hard for us anyways to read. More peculiarities about the King James. There's actually 300, over 300 words in the King James Version that no longer mean what they did in 1611. This is what we mean by English changes. So let me give you some examples. Here's some English, some King James Version words that you're going to have a hard time with if you're, if you're reading that, even the 1769 version. Uh, chapiter. Chapiter. You know what that is? It's not chapter spelled wrong. It's chapiter. It's a whole different word, whole different thing. Quaternion. Quaternion, ambassage, immerse, hebergion. These have been lost to most people. Most people wouldn't know what to do with this word. You need a special dictionary to look it up. Other words in the King James, they have changed meaning. So the word still exists. It's still used in our vocabulary, but it doesn't mean the same thing as it used to. So for instance, the word compel doesn't mean in the King James what it means in modern day English. Um, the word closet it's not a place where you put your clothes. In King James, it's a, it's a different location. Jesus says, go into your closet and pray. That's, but that's not a good translation for us now, but it was a good translation then. Uh, conversation. The word conversation, to them back then, it meant way of life. We mean a dialogue between two individuals, a conversation, right? But then it meant a way of life. So see your conversation before the Gentiles, King James talks about. Carriages. Carriages, back in 1611, it meant luggage. Instant didn't mean right away. It meant insistent. So if I, I come to you and I'm being instant, it just means I'm, I'm insisting on something. I'm being urgent about something. It's different. Leasing, L-E-A-S-I-N-G, leasing, you, you're leased to own. Well, leasing actually meant lying back then. Meet, M-E-E-T, meet, it meant proper, fitting, appropriate. Whereas now it means like gathering together. So English changes. Um, now, if you've been King James only influenced, uh, and perhaps you're not King James only, but because you would have clicked off this video already. <laughs> you would have walked out of the room. But if you've been influenced by this, this info should really help. It, it's not a conspiracy. Things just change. And this is, this is rational. You know, this is good. It's a great translation. But it doesn't have to be for all time. It wasn't for all time. For 1,600 years, the church existed without it. 
So I, I would just say this. If, if you're influenced by King James only, listen to the whole story. Just it's not, Nothing's wrong with researching and digging into it and hearing someone other than the particular King James only propagators give you their information. It's never good to have only one source. Um, okay, so let's talk about the New King James Version. New King James Version, which was printed in 1982, mass printed in 1982, and the textual basis is the same as the King James Version. The Textus Receptus, meaning it's, it's not based on, you know, so much Greek that comes before the King James is based on whatever the King James did. Whatever reading they took, they use that for the new King James. Um, this makes it very acceptable. If you really are a Texas Receptus person, I'd recommend using the new King James Version then. It's an updated translation. It's going to be more accurate for you. Um, so other manuscripts were available in 1982. They were just ignored. They just said, we, just, we don't believe that those ones are the ones we're going to use. We think that, that the, uh, the Texas Receptus and the majority text represents better the original. That's fine. Um, the methodology, how did they translate it? The translation methodology. It was basically just meant to be an update to the King James Version. Right? It's an update to the King James Version. So they do a word for word, as much as they can, exact equivalence, formal equivalence, uh, just because that's what the King James Version did. And it's a good success at this. It's a good translation. It's a very, very good translation, the New King James. Um, and the difference, of course, is it's updated, and so it no longer has the archaic terms that we see in the in the uh, King James Version. But that also means it doesn't have the literary beauty of the King James Version because the archaic terms and the literary beauty are entirely connected. There's You, you can't get one without the other uh, in this case. It has good translations of many unlikely readings, like John 7, 53 through 8.11 and the ending of Mark and uh, the um, John 1 John 5.7. So it has really good translations of, of what are unlikely readings. And as a teacher, I'm a little tired of telling people this probably isn't in the original. I'd rather just have a translation that reflects that and not confuse people and put them through that roller coaster. It, um, fortunately, it does have um, footnotes indicating where the manuscripts disagree. So it'll say straight out, like, this is where the manuscripts disagree, and that's helpful. It italicizes words that are added for clarity into the text, so you know this word was added. It wasn't in the Greek. It was added, and I appreciate that. It just let me know that you added that. It, there's good reason to add it, but I like to know. Um, not all modern translations do that. And it's good if you don't ignore the footnotes, um, but people do, <laughs> sadly. And that's something you should learn from this series is don't ignore the footnotes. It's worth getting a good Bible with good footnotes and read them. Um, personally, I prefer if the most likely reading is in the text and then the footnote presents the less likely reading. The King James Version and the New King James would reverse that order. In, in many cases, not every case, obviously. Not every case, but in several important cases. So let's talk about the, the RSV, Revised Standard Version. This was printed in 1952. And how they made it was they used the King James Version as a starting point. And then they're, but, but then they use a different textual basis. So here's the King James Version in English. This is what we're going to kind of work with in English. But their Greek sources are basically the most updated in 1952. Um, so it leaves out several verses that were in the King James, which we discussed last week. The translation methodology, well, it was meant to be a middle ground between word for word and phrase for phrase, leaning more towards word for word. But, but at the time, this was sort of like bold to not just do straight word for word. And so it was people reacted as though it was really out there, but it was just less word for word and a little bit more phrase for phrase than the King James Version. Um, it seems to be a good translation, though it was criticized um, but because of its textual basis. 
that's not King James, you know, that kind of thing. And because it had some dynamic equivalents in it. And there's some peculiarities in it. It's still archaic in many ways, probably because of its fidelity to the King James. So it keeps some of the older style readings. And I think this probably helped it gain popularity. It had a lot of popularity for a good time. It still feels kind of like what a lot of people were used to, you know, so that makes it easier for them to take it. So it has like thee, thou, hast, and hath, but only in reference to God. So whenever God's being referred to, it'll use those older terms, at kind of like an elevation in a sense. That's not in the Greek. It's not in the Hebrew. It's just a literary liberty. It's, it's not a literal straight translation in that case. It's, it's just taking a liberty there. And it was criticized because it left out, in its original printing, left out John 7.53 through 8.11, which is the story of the woman caught in adultery. We talked about that before. Then after being criticized, they added it back in and sales went up. <laughs> so you wonder, why is it still there? Well, there you go. Um, it is no longer in print. It is no longer in print, the RSV. But the new Revised Standard Version, the next translation we'll talk about, that is in print. In 1989, they did an update to the RSV. It is, it is in print, the new Revised Standard Version. The textual basis now is the 1989. Most, basically all the text they had available in 1989. Not that much different than what we have available now. It's very similar to what we have at this point. Um, it's much more dynamic than the Revised Standard Version. Like Here's King James, very literal. Here's the RSV, doing a little bit of dynamic stuff over here. The new Revised Standard, much more of a dynamic uh, NIV type uh, translator. Um, there are some peculiarities, and I, I might be a little bit nitpicky here, but there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies in the new Revised Standard Version, which are translated in a less messianic way. Like, you could translate it either way. You know, th this passage could go either way, but they consistently go with the less messianic route that they could take, you know. And that's just something to notice because it adds up with some other issues as well. It was considered a liberal translation by a lot of people because it was one of the first gender-inclusive um, translations. Gender-inclusive, which is a mixed mixed bag. Uh, we'll talk more about it as we go on. But the idea of, the of, of gender-inclusive is this. Um, in the Bible, it'll use, say in the Greek, the word anthropos, talking about man. It'll use that in reference to men and women or just in reference to men. That's how, it, that's how it is. You would say brothers in the Greek. You'd say brothers, and you met your brothers and your sisters, or maybe you just met your brothers. It depended on the context. So at some point, translators are going, English is changing. We no longer say brothers when we mean our sisters. And so we no longer say man as much when we mean as mankind. We mean, hey, all of man. Um, we tend to in Christian circles more, but in the rest of the world, not as much. So they started saying, well, how about we translate, uh, you know, brother and sister instead of just brother or anyone instead of he or he who or instead of he who it's, 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 it's whoever you know, or something like that. And they, and they started kind of sort of taking away the, the masculine sense that was coming across because they felt like it didn't translate well. That seems wise to me in some ways, but the New Revised Standard Version, I think, went way too far with it in my opinion. Um, they did it a lot, and they didn't do it relating to God. Now, that would be different. If you're like, God, and they're going to say God's like a she, that's, okay, stop. Like, there's no, there's just no justification for that. It's weird. Um, but there are a couple passages. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 is one in particular. If you have a New Revised Standard Version, look it up. And this is just revisionism at this point. Like, it's a really bad translation of this passage. It's not because I'm anti-woman. I think women are great, you know. Like, half the people I know are women. So, um, it's just, 1 Timothy 3.2 is like, it's as though they purposely sort of 
twisted the translation in order to say uh, there can be female bishops. Instead of saying, how can we accurately represent the text? It was like, we have an agenda, we're just trying to get this out. And that's just poorly translated. So it was accused of being liberally influenced, and it probably was. <laughs> this doesn't mean it's a perversion, nor does it mean that you don't have the word of God if you're reading it in RSV. It just means that in a couple places, it's going to skew it a certain way that may not accurately represent the original. But the rest of the time, it's a fairly good dynamic translation. And that's good to know. It's not like, oh, well, this place is bad. Throw the whole thing out. Burn it. No, no. That's just... It's just got an error there. It's got an issue there. So let me give you an example. In John 1.18, this is from the NRSV, John 1.18, it says, listen to how strong this is on the deity of Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. It is God, the only Son. Talk about the clarity of the deity of Christ. So this isn't a conspiracy to destroy the Christian faith, but they, may, they probably had some bad judgment calls when it came to some not most, just some of the gender stuff that they were doing. Um, it's generally a good dynamic translation. It just has some of its own weaknesses. All right, so then I'll talk about here the NASB, New American Standard Bible. And this is from 1995. This is a much uh, more recent translation, depending on how old you are. <laughs> to me, it seems recent because I remember that. I remember 1995. So if I remembered, it must not be that old. <laughs> Um, so the textual basis was basically the most recent stuff they had in 95. So it's very similar to what we have today. Um, the methodology is a word-for-word -word wherever possible. The NASB is a good word-for-word -word translation based on much newer, more recent manuscripts. And it was very well received um, because of that. Here's some peculiarities about it. Um, it. It's used in more seminaries and scholastic circles than any other. That's just an interesting fact because they find that it's useful for in-depth Bible study because word for word is more good for just digging in. You know, what does it really say? But what does it really say? You know, that's word for word. That's what you want. And so they use it in scholastic circles and seminaries. When idioms are used, when they do a dynamic translation for any reason, they include a footnote with the more word for word translation. I happen to really like that. Oh, give me, yeah, oh, so I, I at least get to be informed as the reader when you do a word for word. Uh, don't do word for word. It's down there. There's the word for word in the footnote. I like that. I think that's pretty cool. Um, it's in, uh, um, also, alternate translations are also included in some of the footnotes as well. Um, instead of an obvious paragraph break in the text, new paragraphs are shown with uh, bolder verse numbers. So you'll have, like, imagine a font and then a bold font. You, you'll have a bold verse number showing that there's a paragraph that happened there. Um, maybe you like that because then the verses are all sort of evenly spaced. Maybe you don't like the paragraph style. That's just up to you. And it's criticized for being a bit wooden. In fact, it got criticized a lot for being kind of wooden, kind of stilted. You know, like as you're reading it, it's like that's a little bit awkward. Why? Because they stayed so faithful to the original that some of that difficulty of realizing you're reading what was written in another language originally, some of that came through. So they actually had a revision not too long after it came out to help with the woodenness of the translation. So some of those criticisms fell to the side, um, but some people still say it's wooden. I don't know if they're going off older information or if they still think it's wooden. I don't know. It is a very good word-for-word -word translation. Uh, Dan Wallace, who I've been using as a source for a lot of this, uh, the, my studies in uh, the original languages, he says that the NAS NASB is probably the best word-for-word -word translation available today. And that was in 2004 when he made that statement. There's other stuff that's you know come up in that time. 
But uh, that, that's pretty high praise. That's pretty high praise. Dan Wallace is a highly respected guy. He's been involved in several Bible translations. So let's talk about the ESV. The ESV, the English Standard Version. It was printed in 2001. And uh, this is another one where pretty much we're not going to get any more that are based off of the few manuscripts, or I should say the, uh, the few Greek and large number of Latin and all that manuscripts that the King James Version was based off. We're now using those and all of the stuff, everything. Everything's, everything's good to go, basically. Nobody's making translations based on only a, a, a portion of the manuscripts. They want to look at them all. So the ESV does that as well. They, um, they use the most up-to-date stuff. In fact, uh, 2001, so that's very up-to-date. And it uses the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, I talked about that earlier, as their base text. As their base text. So what does that mean? It means that like, if they look at the RSV and they go, man, this is an incredible translation, we'll just leave the reading the same. Then the next verse they go, yeah, we'll change the wording here based on the Greek. So they are working with the original languages, but they're basing, most translations are based off of a previous translation nowadays most. It departs from the RSV to improve it or to make it more current, change the wording to be more relevant today. The methodology, well, it's, it's considered an essentially literal or word-for-word translation, um, although it's, pro- it's less so than the New American Standard Version. And it's, that means it's more readable, but it's still in the category of word-for-word translation. Now, the ESV came to high praise, high praise, uh, especially from Calvinist circles. Uh, not to say that it's a Calvinist translation. I don't have any reason to think that it somehow forces Calvinism upon anybody. Um, although if Calvinism is true, then Calvinism is forced upon you. Just kidding. That's just a pot shot. That's not even accurate. Calvinism, I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> I can see it right now. Calvin is like typing in there. <laughs> you misrepresent. I'm just kidding. It's not real. Um, but it, so it's like the NASB, but it's, but it's considered more readable. So NASB came out before this, and it was like people just loved it. They soaked it up. When the ESV came out, a lot of those same people that loved the NASB switched over. And the ESV became also very popular. So really, they're both good translations to the same types of conservative, um, Bible-believing individuals that we would probably find ourselves aligned with. Um, they, interesting thing about them, the ESV, it tries to go through the scripture and translate the word slave differently depending on the context because there's different types of slavery in the scriptures there's there's servanthood there's bond servant there's slave and so they try to translate it accurately so that a more modern person doesn't equate because when we think slave we tend to think uh, America's shameful past or something like that you know and it really it's nothing like that so they try to represent that Um, and they also do they don't do gender neutral but they do what they call gender accurate now, this might freak people out a bit, but you know how conservative I am, okay? I can just tell you, they really are trying to be gender accurate here. There's no agenda to uh, feminize the Bible. It's simply to say, look, if the original reader thought this applied to men and women, then we should try to make it so that the current reader thinks the same thing. And I think that they did a good job with that. They haven't drawn much criticism on that, unlike the NRSV, which seemed to have gone way overboard on that issue. So um, I take that as a pretty good sign. Okay, now the Holman Christian Standard Bible. In 2004, this Bible came out, Holman Christian Standard. And unlike most of the ones we've talked about today, it is a brand new translation. So they didn't use any other translation as a basis working with the original languages. It was just straight out of the original language, which means there's obviously uh, going to be some new readings, but there'll be some that are similar because you're translating the same text. So of course it's going to read very similar. 
they used the most up-to-date versions of the uh, available Greek information. And the translation here is what they call optimal equivalence. Optimal. You like how they, no matter what they say, they're like literal equivalent, dynamic, optimal. Like they always make it sound like it's the best. And, and that's, you know, that's part of the sales stuff that they do. But here you have literal word for word. Here you have phrase for phrase. The idea of optimal is we're going to read each passage. And we don't, we're not scared to do word for word. We're not scared to do phrase for phrase. We're just going to do whatever we think communicates it the best. It tends to be more word for word and occasionally dynamic. So occasionally phrase for phrase. So it kind of goes a little bit back and forth. But let's say, you know, here you've got the NASB, word for word. You've got the ESV. Bit less so than you've got the Holman Christian, which is sort of in between the NASB and the NIV, kind of like in the middle there. Um, some peculiarities. Um, it's, it's involved with over 100 different scholars. Some people think it's a Baptist translation. Uh, that's, that's not true. It's <laughs> 100 scholars from 17 different denominations that were involved in it. It's got tons of footnotes. It's really well respected for having lots of good footnotes. Specifically, again, like the NASB, when a, a phrase for phrase or thought for thought translation is used, they try to put a footnote there to inform you about the word for word translation. I really like that a lot. Um, this is something that I think the new NIV, the current NIV, lacks. They'll do a phrase for phrase kind of thing, and you don't know that they did it. And I don't. Sometimes you don't. Uh, some people say it's too literal. Other people say it's too free. Maybe that means they did a good job, because <laughs> you're always going to get criticized. And here's something interesting. I like this. You might not. They translate the word, uh, the the tetragrammaton, the, basically the the Yod Hey Vav Hey, which is the name of God. They translate this Yahweh. And they do this 654 times. Um, now, the name of God, Yahweh, is in the text over 6,000 times. So they don't do it every time, but they do it a lot of the time. I really personally like this. I think if God inspired it to be written that way, we should try to translate it that way to the best of our ability. Yahweh is the most likely English pronunciation of the name which God gave to Moses and said, tell them, you know, Yahweh. That's who. Well... Um, that's my opinion. Uh, however, some people think, well, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they didn't translate it Yahweh. They translated it Curious. They, they dropped it and they put it, they put Lord. That's the word Lord in Greek. Curious. And so if they did it that way, we should follow the suit. And well, but I'm more inclined to follow the original than to follow a translation <laughs> of the original later. That's just my personal opinion. I personally really like that. Um, the pronunciation, just an educated guess, Yahweh. But we know it's not Jehovah. Jehovah is a wrong translation. We know this. Jehovah isn't even an attempt to reconstruct the name appropriately or rightly or make it sound even Hebrew. There's no J in Hebrew. So, and the vowels are taken from the word Adonai, which means Lord. And they just took the, the Hebrew word for Lord, imported those vowels into Yahweh, made it a J because of the Latin influence, and you have Jehovah, which is certainly not a correct pronunciation. Um, so I think that's interesting. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it translates the word doulos, which is a uh, Greek word in the New Testament that means servant or slave. They always translate it slave because it's more accurately saying you're a slave. I'm a slave of Christ, not just a servant of Christ. There is a nuanced difference there. They often will translate Christ as Messiah in the, uh, in the New Testament, specifically when it's relating to his messianic duties or titles or something like that. I'm not really sure how I feel about that. Like, they are changing it from Christ to the Hebrew Messiah. Um, I don't know. Generally, they ignore modern gender issues and translate literally. 
for the most part. Homeland Christian Standards is just like, we're just gonna we're just gonna give you the, what the text says and you can figure it out. That's kind of their philosophy on that. Um, this is kind of cool. There's theological vocabulary words that are included and they make sure not to mess with words like justification, sanctification, redemption. These are big words, but they're important in Christian theology. But in addition to including that, there's a glossary that comes standard in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And it's going to have words like Abba, sanctification, centurion, or words that are likely to not be known by a typical English reader. They'll, they'll go into and they'll have the glossary at the end. That's pretty cool. Old Testament messianic passages tend to, tend to be more clearly messianic um, in this particular translation. So it's got a lot going in its favor. I, I happen to like it. I'm going to be looking into it more personally. We'll see. Maybe I'll change my mind later. <laughs> now let's talk about the NIV. Uh, the NIV is the most popular English translation in the world at the moment, depending on how you measure that popularity. It's also the most attacked English translation in the world, I think, and it doesn't deserve to be the most attacked in the world. Um, it was made in 1984, and I think its popularity is the source of its attacks, as well as some of the assaults that have come upon it. I've heard pastors who I love and respect say that the NIV is the not inspired version. And I want to say this very carefully, very carefully. You're not attacking the NIV when you say that. You're attacking the Bible. Because the NIV accurately translates the Bible the vast majority of the time. And when you say it's not inspired, you're attacking the Bible. And if all someone had read was the NIV for 40 years and you say that, you're undermining their faith in the Word of God. And, 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 and you have no evidence to prove it. So shut up. That's all I'm going to say to that. You need to stop. You have to stop. You have to stop. Now, I'll show you some bad stuff about it, but let's be real. Let's just be honest, okay? Um, the, uh, the textual basis is, is, is newer, so it's a more modern textual basis. The, the translation methodology is more phrase for phrase. It's, it's, it's pretty phrase for phrase. It leans strongly phrase for phrase as opposed to word for word. Um, so Dan Wallace, our good friend, he says, or he used to say, now he thinks his translation is better because now he has his own translation now. But back in the day, he said, I personally consider it the best phrase for phrase translation available today. Um, in my opinion, a phrase-for-phrase translation is really good at getting the clarity across. This is just my opinion for what it's worth. The clarity of the text across. But if you're doing careful, in-depth, like I'm really looking at the word to see exactly, like if it says it this way, it means it. If it says it that way, then it means a different thing. If you're doing that, a phrase-for-phrase translation is not for you. It's inevitable that a phrase-for-phrase translation requires the person translating to do some interpreting along the way. They have to because they're trying to get the idea across. So they have to do some interpreting. It's minimal, but it's there. And so I don't think uh, careful Bible study should be done primarily based on a phrase-for-phrase translation. It has gone through several revisions. In 2005, the TNIV came out. The, the, the Today's NIV came out. Um, it was abandoned not too long after. It had a lot of gender-inclusive stuff in it. It had a lot of criticism against it, and they just quit. <laughs> like, yeah, forget it. So they quit doing it. But in 2011, to a lot of us, quietly, the NIV just changed. And you didn't know it because it's not called the NIV, the new, new international version. It was just the NIV. In 2011, the old 1984 versions of the NIV came off the shelves, and the new 2011 version of the NIV, versions of the NIV went on the shelves. And what are the differences? Well, let me talk to you about some of the peculiarities. Because um, that's the only NIV that's on sale today. So 2016 right now as we're talking... This is the NIV that's on sale. If you go buy one, you get this one. It was made with very good scholars. 
very good, good, respected, intelligent, careful, thoughtful scholars, good scholarship. Um, a wide variety of these scholarships is a scholarship comes, excuse me, these scholars come from a wide variety within evangelical conservative believing Christianity. So I like that. Um, there are some people who say that the NIV is a gay translation. I'm quoting here. I wouldn't use that phrase. They say the NIV is a gay translation. Let me quote for you. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, verse nine, one of the key texts on dealing with the topic of homosexuality in the scripture. And there's lots of different translations that deal with this different ways. Could it be any more clear than the NIV 2011? It says that God condemns men who have sex with men. No more clear than that. I mean, it could not be more clear than that. And they're translating two different words. We dealt with this on the series on homosexuality. They're translating these two different Greek words and our synechoitas and all this. It, that, that is about as clear as you could possibly get. Men who have sex with men, it's condemned. No, you, you can't have any, any wiggle room there with that phrase. Um, and it's a, there's a footnote in there to keep this strong. And it says it's translating two different words referring to the active and passive homosexual sexual participants. To like you can't get around it. No matter what your part is in in homosexual uh, sexual activity, it's condemned. In the internet. it's not a gay translation. That's that's just not true. Um, is it antichrist? Let me read to you John one eighteen one eighteen in the NIV. Compare this to your New King James version, which doesn't doesn't sound like this at all, and not for any uh, fault except for just the manuscripts they were using. John one eighteen. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. That's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. Um, Matthew 1.16, um, it correctly gives the identity of Mary as the of whom Jesus was born from, it, whereas some people will try to make it sound like Joseph, he was born from Joseph in Matthew 1.18 saying that Joseph was Jesus' biological father. The Greek doesn't say that. But they're very clear in the NIV uh, 2011 version. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah, instead of of whom. So, in other words, it's strong on the, vir the virgin birth, it's strong on the deity of Christ, it's strong on the issues of homosexuality. Here's some peculiarities about the NIV 2011. Uh, the word alien is now translated foreigner. That seems like a smart update to me, because most people think aliens are, you know, little green things. Um, the word saint is translated God's people or the Lord's people. Personally, I would, I would, I don't like that. Um, but it's just a preference. I mean, there, it's it's not inaccurate entirely to say saint. Well, saint implies holy, so that may be a bad choice. Um, so it's translated God's people or the Lord's people on gender issues. Now, here's where um, I'll say in many places it does a really good job. It's it's very gender inclusive, and most of the time it does a good job. A minority of the time. It doesn't. Um, in Matthew 18, it translates Matthew 18, brother or sister. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and, and, and deal with it between you and them alone. In, in the early church, I seriously doubt they would have thought, my sister sinned against me. I'm going to go get alone with her and tell her about the issue. And it, it was really meant to be between people of the same gender. There's no real easy way to translate that passage. So I would say just leave it the same. But again, this is, this is me nitpicking a little bit, okay? The whole Bible, we're just we're, we're sort of nitpicking here, and I want to be honest about that. Um, Philippians 4.13, they have an improvement here. For all those who constantly quote Philippians 4.13 out of context, you can't do it in the NIV. 
Listen to this. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. All this? What's this? Well, now I have to go to the context and realize that Paul was talking about getting beat up and starving and being rich and just going through any kind of, any kind of life trial through God who strengthens him, not winning a football game. You know? The NIV is very clear. You, you, the most commonly taken out of context verse, you can't. Good job, NIV 2011 group. Um, okay, so other, other gender issues. Um, you know, the scripture says, you know, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Well, this is what the NIV says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. It's almost a little hokey, uh, but why is it worded that way? They're trying to avoid saying he. They're sort of working, they're sort of kind of messing a little bit with it in order to avoid saying he because they want, us, they want us to realize it wasn't only men who have a new creation. True. True. I'm just saying there's one of the cases where it was a little awkward how they handled it. So these are just sort of nitpicky issues here. Um, they're really criticized in 1 Timothy 2.12 because he says, I, uh, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. They translate it in the NIV, I do not per permit a woman to... Um, assume authority over a man. Uh, in defending this, I listened to actually to the, the translators defending this, and they said, well, by assume, we mean like, you know, when the president gets elected and he assumes the office of the president. We don't mean like she's taking it on her own. We just mean she's taking it at all. Yet that's not, in modern language, that's not what we mean by assume for the most part. And so that is a little bit of an of a awkward translation. Um, good reason to have more than one translation available to you. <laughs> so... Um, there's some other stuff too that's a little bit of gender issues and it's not major but it is a sensitive topic for today so I bring it up um, would I teach from the NIV personally uh, NIV 2011 no it doesn't fit my style of teaching um, it doesn't fit my style of studying the word um, that's not because of those particular issues it's because of the type of translation I don't really want to teach from a phrase for phrase translation in general it's good but I just wouldn't. Um, so I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. <laughs> it's not. Um, it is a good translation, though. And in the vast, vast majority of the Bible, you're going to find it very faithful and very well done. And so let's stop calling it the not inspired version. Then let's talk about the Living Bible. In 1971, the Living Bible came out. The Living Bible was a paraphrase of the American Standard Version. I didn't talk about that one, but time, time, time. The Living Bible is a paraphrase. It is not a translation. On our scope of word for word, phrase for phrase, here's where paraphrase goes. Way over there. Way over there. A paraphrase is like, well, basically this is what it's trying to say. Okay, that is not good for studying. I don't, and I'll be very honest here, I think, after really thinking through this, I don't think paraphrases should be printed and, and, and shopped out and offered as Bibles. It's a paraphrase. This isn't what Jeremiah wrote. This is what you thought Jeremiah meant. And so you should put it out there like, you know what would be great is a parallel Bible. That's great, man. Give me like a word for word and give me a paraphrase next to it. I'll, and what is this? This is this dude's interpretation and, and extrapolation of the text. That's fine. The Living Bible, extremely popular. Billy Graham helped popularize it. You know, he would give it out at his crusades. And it's printed in there saying, every Christian should own a Living Bible and read it. it of course, it says that in the introduction to its own thing. Um, they all say that kind of stuff. Um, it's the work of one guy who didn't use the Greek and Hebrew. He literally read the American Standard Version and then reworded it into what he felt was easier to get or got the point across. It's a dude's interpretation of the Bible. Um, 
That's not bad if you treat it like that. It's too often treated like it's a Bible, like it's just straight the word of God. That's clumsy, and that's a, that's a bit reckless, and I think it's a little bit um, dishonoring to the word of God, to be honest. Now, the Living Bible um, made tons and tons of money and started Tyndale Publishing House and all that kind of thing. And then they decided to do the New Living Translation, which was meant to be like an updated sort of Living Bible in 1996. It started getting really popular and they were like, man, you know what? We want to do not a paraphrase. We want to do a, a, a thought for thought. We want to do more of a phrase for phrase. And so they got a bunch of scholars in and they actually did a really good job uh, doing a thought for thought. But if you don't like the NIV because it's phrase for phrase, yet you like the New Living Translation, it's more phrase for phrase than in the NIV. So it's, it's further to the, to the liberty of a little bit of freedom than the NIV. It is, however, I think, personally, pretty good. Here's some peculiarities about it. Um, it avoids theological terms like sanctification, justification, regeneration. It uses the phrase like made right with God or made holy or born anew. Uh, the footnotes are often included when they have the really free renderings, and that's good. Um, there is no question about it. This is not for studying carefully, but casually. It's because it's, it's a phrase thing. It's extra. It's good if you read it with that in mind. That's my opinion about it. Most of the time, I've been really happy with the interpretive choices I've seen in the, in the New Living Translation. So I recommend it as a, uh, as a sort of a freer translation. Because I'm going, yeah, he's interpreting, but I like the way he's interpreting. So that's, that's subjective, but that's my opinion. Um, the gender choices seem to be pretty good. It's good for kids uh, or those who are poor readers. So you just, you're like, my comprehension is not very good. Okay, well, then you should get a, an easier Bible and find the one, find the, in my opinion, find the, the closest to word for word that you can regularly and simply comprehend. Not where you're like dying over every sentence to get it, but you know, that would be my personal thought. And I think it's very refreshing to go to and read the New Living Translation uh, after having studied a passage, kind of refresh you and break you out of your funk and maybe have you notice things you didn't see before. All right, so now I want to talk about the message. The message, the message Bible. Um, it's like the Living Bible taken to <laughs> way out there. So I'm, I'm actually not a fan of the message, and I know a lot of people are, but you shouldn't be. And let me tell you why. <laughs> Um, the, the text, the, the text is used, it's, it's using more modern texts. That's good. But it is a paraphrase that is extremely idiomatic to the point of losing a lot of the meaning in the original. So I'm just going to read you some from the message. Okay. Here's, I'm going to compare with the ESV, which is more word for word. So here's the ESV, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Matthew 5.13 from the message. Let me tell you what you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's Proverbs 1.17 in the ESV. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. It's a proverb. You've got to think about it to understand it, right? In vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. Proverbs 1.17. Message. Nobody robs a bank when everyone is watching. That's not a translation. That's not even a paraphrase. It's, it's true. It's true. But it's not. Yeah. Uh, Psalm 1.1. You know this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Here's the same verse in the message. How well God must like you. 
You don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You don't slink along Dead End Road. You don't go to Smart Mouth College. <laughs> Zechariah 13.6 in the ESV. And if anyone asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Familiar passage to some of us. Zechariah 13.6 in the message. And if someone says, so where did you get that black eye? They'll say, I ran into a door at a friend's house. <laughs> you can't even call it a translation at all. It's, it's not even a paraphrase. This is like, Eugene Peterson, is one guy did this translation, one guy by himself. Um, he said he just had to give himself freedom to just go for it. He said he translated the Beatitudes in about 10 minutes. He said that. Obviously, it's true. Um, this is an extremely poor handling of the word of God, and it tends to add the snicker factor into a lot of the Bible where it really doesn't belong. It's like he thought he was trying to be clever and witty and funny and a lot of colloquialisms that really belong more in like, you know, the panhandle and don't really fit anywhere else on planet Earth. Yet this has been a super popular translation, and that should stop. I mean, really, it's not a translation. We shouldn't even call it that. It shouldn't be called the Message Bible. It should be called Eugene Peterson's Impressions from the Bible. That's what it should be called. I mean, I'm not, that's not to attack him. He even says, I don't like it when people use these in churches. I've been to Eugene Peterson because I've been to churches where they were using the message in public reading and I cringed because he knows this is bad. Why, why is it printed? Because the publisher was like, dude, make more of those. Oh, we can sell these. <laughs> Peterson, however, does say this. Um, he says it's meant for new believers as a first Bible. And they should quickly be weaned from it. He doesn't think that it should even be read in church. And um, I don't think it's even good for new believers. I mean, really? You want to you have that as your intro to the truths of God? And then later you're like, you mean that wasn't about Sin Saloon? I didn't, oh, well, I didn't realize that. Like, come on, man. It is the most idiomatic translation I've ever seen. It makes things into idioms or colloquialisms where they weren't before. Uh, Work with labor and toil becomes work our fingers to the bone. Transgress becomes run roughshod. Run roughshod? Do you even know what that means? Strengthened with all power becomes stick it out over the long haul. It's just, it's just not good. It's bad English. Even if you, if you have English as a second language, you're not going to understand it at all. So um, I've actually found passages in the message where the theology is just plain wrong. It's just his theology is off. So some you lose the theology, and others it's actually mischaracterized. So anyway, that's enough of that. <laughs> um, the New World Translation. Right, the message would be the bad. We talked about some good, we talked about some bad. Let's talk about the ugly. The New World Translation is the Jehovah's Witness um, authored translation of the Bible. It is the worst English translation you will probably ever come across. For a few reasons, for a few reasons. Um, first off, who did it? The New World Translation won't tell us. They will not release the names of the translators, although some former Jehovah's Witness members have exposed who they really were. Um, why did they do it? To eliminate, quote, from them, to eliminate the misleading influence of religious traditions which have their roots in paganism. In other words, it's a sectarian translation made to preach the particulars of the Jehovah's Witness faith. Um, it uses the... Some of the newish texts, you know, go back like 50 years and uses what they had available about that time. And it's word for word more than the King James ever was to the point of being bad English. It's klutzy. It's difficult to read. It's hard to understand a lot of it. 
it's it was carelessly made because the people who did it didn't really know Greek very well. Um, word for word to the point of being bad English. It is the most literal translation out there on the market, except in the passages where the Bible teaches things that don't agree with Jehovah's Witness teaching, in which case they're willing to monkey with the text. And so they'll do all sorts of things. And I'm actually going to do an entire day on the New World Translation sometime. And I want to show you guys the text and the passages and that sort of thing. Um, basically, if you're not reading off a Jehovah's Witness website, you will have lots of information that tells you how bad this translation is. It's not a conspiracy. The Jehovah's Witnesses aren't being attacked. It's just a deceitful, bad translation, and everybody knows it, including the leaders of the Jehovah's Witness organization. And it's shameful, absolutely shameful. Um, it combines the worst qualities of word for word and the worst qualities of phrase for phrase into the worst translation you can get. That's what it is. I recommend reading it at least once so you know for yourself. Not the whole thing. I wouldn't do that. But give, give yourself a familiar passage and then read it in, the, in, in their translation. You can see it's, it's stilted, it's awkward, that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, I'm going to mention really quick a few other things. Um, the NIRV is basically a paraphrase, a New International Reader's Version. So it's in the NIV family, and it's, a, it's sort of a free paraphrase, basically. So it's not like an NIV, it's, but it's, you know, they're trying to capitalize on that name, and it's a paraphrase version. Um, the ISV is a translation that uh, I would include in details about, but it's still not, hasn't quite been printed yet, but I've heard some good things about it. Um, I'd like to know more about it when, it when it becomes more available. Then you have Catholic versions. I was asked to do at least one Catholic version, so I want to talk about the Nabre. Just kidding. It's the N-A-B-R-E. <laughs> New American Bible Revised Edition. This is the Catholic official translation for the United States. It's used in all of the, all of the Catholic services that happen and all the Catholic readings that happen throughout the United States of America. Um, the textual basis is the newer text. That's good. The translation methodology is actually a little confusing. It's varied. This New American Bible Revised Edition has gone through multiple different editions, where they, they've actually retranslated whole giant portions of the scripture. So at one point it was word for word, then it went to phrase for phrase, a whole new translation coming out under, this, under the same name. Um, now it tends to be more phrase per phrase, and it's a very, uh, very free phrase per phrase, more way beyond, say, the NIV. Some peculiarities about it. Um, it's gender neutral to the max overboard gender neutral stuff uh, where it's not necessary and not necessarily justifiable. Um, it alone is used in the parishes, like I said. The notes of the NABRE are like its predecessor, the NAB. They reflect critical scholarship positions. So let me give you some examples. It's, see, the, the worst thing about the, and, and I, I thought I would find a good translation when I was studying Catholic translations. I did. I thought I'd find a good one. This isn't. Um, and it's it's not so much the text, okay? The, the text itself has a couple negative influences, but you could still get the Bible out of it, you know, fairly reliably, okay? That's not the problem. But the footnotes that come standard with all of them are liberal, I mean, anti-Catholic footnotes. It's crazy that they have their translators are liberal. I mean, they're, they're not even, okay, give you some examples. They believe that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, and they say so in the footnotes to the NABRE. This is a documentary hypothesis, and it goes back, and it's been, in my opinion, it's been debunked, but they promote this sort of thing. They believe that Isaiah had multiple authors, and they say so in their footnotes. Now, this strikes against traditional Catholic perspectives. 
And many Catholics gripe and complain about the footnotes in this thing. They're like, what is up with that? I don't know why it's happening. It just is. It says that Daniel, the book of Daniel, was written around 200 B.C. Now, if you were here for the series we did talk about Daniel, you're like, hello? <laughs> why do you say that? Because they're just liberal scholars that are running this thing. And um, they're preterist in their approach to the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Uh, and all these things are throughout the, the, the stuff. I'll give you an example. One example. A footnote in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, in, in verses 21 through 23, where Jesus predicts his crucifixion. I'm going to die and, and raise again. The footnote says that this passage where Jesus predicts his crucifixion is something Jesus didn't actually say. Is there evidence for that? Zero. What is it? It's a liberal assumption that Jesus couldn't have prophesied what he was going to say. Nah. And so they couch it in all this stuff. But, but I mean, here you read the text, and then down there goes, nope, lie. I mean, that's a, and that's the impact it has on you, right? You're not like, well, maybe there's a nuanced understanding as to where this could be reasonable. I mean, come on. Let's just be honest. This is just undermining the Christian faith. Um, I don't recommend that for anybody, for anybody to read. Um, the, there, then there's the second most popular Catholic translation is the New Jerusalem Bible. Now, both of these include the Apocrypha, of course, right? They're going to be included. The Deuterocanonical books will be in there. Um, the New Jerusalem Bible, NJB, is also a dynamic translation. It's dynamic. It's not known for being particularly good. And it contains many of the similar types of really bad, unbelieving notes. It's like having a liberal unbeliever write your study notes for your Bible. That's what they did. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, I do have one rec recommendation for you. If you're really interested in variant readings and why do they translate it this way versus that way, there's a free resource online that you can use. It's called the NET Bible, the NET Bible. Um, it's a decent translation, but mostly I'm recommending it because they have extensive footnotes where you'll be told not just other manuscripts read this, but rather you'll be told why they picked this reading versus that and maybe some more information. So if you like it, I would look at the Net Bible. I mean, just search Net Bible on Google and you'll get it. It's a really neat resource. Tons and tons of notes. Um, so uh, in conclusion, long service today. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not coming back to this topic, so I wanted to just get it all. In conclusion, is you're deciding what Bible to use, you're like, but Mike, you haven't told us what Bible to use. <laughs> um, personally, I'm going to be moving away from the New King James Version over time. Not because it's a bad translation, but because of the textual basis of it isn't as up to date and it's not as, I think, as good as, uh, as the newer translations are. I'm going to probably take several months and be reading and looking at some of these translations. I'm going to look at the ESV. I'm going to look at the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the NASB. These are probably the ones I'm going to focus on the most, those three. I don't know what conclusion I'll come to at the end. I'm not going to tell you which one you have to use. In all honesty, if you picked any of the translations I didn't bash, <laughs> you're going to be okay. You know what I mean? You're going to be okay. And if you really care about getting, you know, I want the, the nitty gritty, I want the details, then get, get a more word for word translation. If you're like, I have a hard time with some of that. Like, I just want to, I just want to understand it more easily Then get a more phrase for phrase and don't feel bad. Why? Because you with the phrase for phrase may mean you know more of the Bible than you with a word for word. And so it kind of depends on you a little bit and how cool that we living in a time where we can pick a translation like that. I get all these, I have a bunch of really good translations I can actually pick from. And they might have a couple peculiarities, but that doesn't mean the whole thing's bad. And that's why I can have, and I recommend this, 
more than one translation that you read. I'd recommend at least one word-for-word -word translation and then perhaps uh, a, a thought-for-thought -thought or phrase-for-phrase -phrase translation for when you're reading the word-for-word -word and you're like, yeah, maybe I need to reference that somewhere else and get a better idea of it. And that, that would be a good place to start. So um, in conclusion, I think if I was really trying to communicate important things to people, as the Bible is, um, and I had to use a translator, which I've had before, and I've had those times where I have the translator and I say something simple and they just kind of keep going. <laughs> You know, and I'm like, what are they doing? What did they say? What did I say now? I think that I would want the translator to give them a word-for-word -word translation unless that word-for-word -word translation was somehow not going to communicate the meaning because it just doesn't work in the new language. So I'm, I'm looking for a translation that does a similar thing. So I'm looking for the New American Standard or the ESV or maybe the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I've done some research on it, but I'm but I haven't spent the kind of time in them that I have in the New King James Version, which I've been teaching for years. And so we'll see. We'll see. All right, well, let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for this, the, uh, the amazing attention spans of everybody in the room here. <laughs> They're still with me. Uh, thank you for this time tonight. And we thank you for your holy word. You have preserved it, Lord. It's not a conspiracy. We have a lot of great resources out there, especially English speakers. We're super blessed, Lord. We don't want to take it for granted. We're just grateful. And we pray that we would, uh, we would have the wisdom to just recognize your word for what it is. Treat it like it is. Realize that um, the King James Version is part of a, an, an amazing legacy of wonderful English translations of the scriptures. And we're grateful for what you provided, Lord. You have preserved your word. In Jesus' name, amen.